Yes, hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us on this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I am Ali Maxwell. Thrilled to be joined today by first, Michael Cox. How are you doing, Michael? I'm very well, thank you, Ali. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah, really well, actually. You've been quite taken this week by a game of Champions League football between Atalanta and Ajax. Yeah, I loved it. Really looking forward to it, um, you know, just from what they've done in the Champions League over the last couple of seasons. And yeah, the game didn't disappoint. It was end-to-end, all action, 2-2, could have been more goals. And yeah, there's an analysis of that up on the Athletic website now. All it took was the phrase double diamond to be included <laughs> in the title of your piece. And I was all in. It didn't disappoint. Really enjoyed that uh, bit of writing. We've got Tom Warville on the line with us as well. Good afternoon, Tom. Hi, Ali. How you doing? You good? I'm very well. You've been doing plenty of writing as well. One piece this week focusing on Leicester City and how they are, yeah, how they've approached the start of the season. A couple of interesting tactical quirks and uh, an interesting side to, to be writing about at the moment, Tom. Yeah, 100%. I mean, a lot of the focus at the moment is on the evolution of Arteta's uh, Arsenal team or, or kind of the woes of Solskjaer at United. And, and I think that Leicester under Rodgers have gone under the radar slightly. Uh, they've had to rebuild in a couple of key positions in the summer. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was worthy of uh, of some column inches. So um, going into James Justin and, and his role um, and just how how vital actually Ben Chilwell was to progressing the ball up upfield for Leicester last season. Um, and Jamie Vardy, he's got a new contract um, and kind of a bit like Aubameyang, he's actually, he's not performing too well so far this season. He's had a couple of injuries um, and he's averaging, you know, less shots and, and less XG than ever. Um, but yeah, Leicester, a really interesting team. Excited to see uh, what they do as they, uh, we kick on into the games as they come, they come fast. Yeah, they really fell away last season, didn't they? But they have started this campaign very well with, with four wins from six games. Just want to pick you up on using the phrase column inches there uh, as an employee <laughs> of The Athletic, very much at the vanguard of, of uh, the, the, the world population's move away from physical media and onto digital media. But you're still using the phrases left behind by your forefathers, your predecessors, despite, as far as I know, never having worked for an actual newspaper yourself. <laughs> Should I say column pixels? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Word we'll count. Go for that um, <laughs> well, <laughs> you guys working hard as ever. I've been really enjoying uh, all of your stuff on site this week, as always. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. If anyone listening wants to join in the fun, uh, that'll get you a subscription to The Athletic for just £1 a month. It's astonishing value and, uh, and not just for the writing as well. But if you're listening to this podcast on your normal podcast platform and you're hearing adverts and you don't want to hear adverts, then you can listen to The Zonal Marking pod in the app as well on site ad free so theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking the place to be well we're, we're kind of on a high because last week uh, we went for a pod about bad stats and I, I was a little nervy heading in it was a it was a, a topic that could have caused some controversy but I think it went down pretty well to be honest and so we move forward uh, with confidence uh, and on a high riding a good wave of form uh, Michael why don't you tell us about what we are undertaking this week and next week because this is the start of a two-part pod. 
Yeah, so we've got uh, two pods lined up that is basically going to look at promoted sides and what they have to do to survive in the Premier League. Um, obviously, it's a big step up uh, coming from the Championship to the Premier League. But then sometimes people say that the second season can be more difficult. People always talk about second season syndrome. So, uh, yeah, we're going to look at that from a statistical and tactical perspective as ever. But first and foremost, today we're looking at what happens when you're promoted from the Championship to the Premier League, what changes and how you need to change or not in order to survive uh, in the context of West Bromwich Albion and Fulham and Leeds being our three promoted sides this season and, well, differing fortunes so far. You've got Baggies and Fulham who are actually playing each other this game week. I was going to say this weekend, but it's actually on Monday afternoon. West Brom are on three points from six games with three draws and three defeats. Fulham on one point through six games. Um, Guys, I I want to start with these two sides. Michael, uh, unlucky start for these two or just looking really poor? Struggling to make a case for them staying up so far based upon what we've seen. I think Fulham really are are lacking the requisite quality in their side in a lot of positions, to be honest. And I think Scott Parker, obviously very inexperienced uh, at this stage of his managerial career. I'm not sure he's really shown enough to convince me that he will get them out of trouble. West Brom, I think a slightly different case. Um, I think they've got a lot of talented players going forward. I think defensively, they're probably a little bit lacking. And uh, Slaven Bilic is a funny one. I mean, he's obviously was a great defender in his own day, but I'm not sure he's particularly suited to this task in terms of drilling a side really well defensively. And you just look at their games so far, they've they've considered a lot of goals. So I think it is going to be tough. I think this was always going to be a tough year to come up to the Premier League because because of obvious uh, financial restrictions. You can't splash the cash as, as some sides have done in previous years. So yeah, while Leeds are a different case, I think these two are going to have a long and quite difficult campaign. Tom, is there anything you can tell us numbers-wise, anything we're missing here, albeit only a few games into the season? How are these two sides shaping up? Yeah, I think it's it's largely bad news for West Brom fans so far. Um, they've currently got the worst Premier League attack in the last five seasons. If we look at expected goals, um, that is of kind of 0.45 xG per game at the moment. Which, yeah, they've they've scored a goal a game, but even that just seems lucky. And there's been some some good finishing so far, but. Um, our old friends, the underlying numbers say kind of otherwise. And that's just down to um, their shooting locations are just really, really bad. The uh, the quality of West Brom's average shot is worth less than kind of 6%. Uh, and when you think that most Premier League teams are shooting from positions, which on average the shot will go in 10% uh, of the time, that is a kind of marked drop-off. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a tough time for West Brom going forwards. And then even at the back as well, by the numbers, they look uh, okay from in terms of goals, but even expected goals against um this is the worst premier league team per game in the last five seasons so um something <laughs> really has to give at either end uh, otherwise this could be a, a long season hopefully the signing of carlin grant uh, on deadline day might make a difference west brom even in promotion from the championship last season never got very much uh, certainly in terms of goals from their strikers really sifted between charlie austin and hal robson Carno, who have differing skill sets but neither of whom scored uh, from open play very regularly that the hope i guess is that grant can provide more of a goal threat and that will mean that Diangana and Pereira can stop shooting every time they get the ball from 25 yards. <laughs> um, uh, what about Fulham numbers-wise, Tom? Any better? 
Uh, yeah, Fulham, I mean, on the defensive end, they're looking kind of similar to the where they were in 18-19, which kind of isn't great. It's towards the bottom 20 teams in, in the last five years in the Premier League. Um, and, like, obviously, there's still a betting in period for um, a couple of, of new signings. But, yeah, it doesn't look amazing. In terms of going forward, the attack looks OK. I think they're roughly around um, mid-table in terms of... XG for 16th, uh, just checking the numbers there. Um, and that's above Newcastle, Burnley, Wolves and, and obviously West Brom. I think my biggest issue with Fulham is just if they don't have goals coming from Mitrovic, I'm not sure that the other players in the squad are really quite at the level to consistently be um, be scoring kind of week in, week out. I mean, they scored a, a consolation goal from Tom Kearney at the weekend, uh, which was a lovely strike, but you, you can't bank on, on that happening um, to get you, you know, plenty of goals to stay up. Even last season, towards the back end of, of their championship promotion campaign through the playoffs, there were discussions being had, um, many of them by myself, about, you know, almost the issue of Mitrovic being so relied upon for goals not necessarily having a go at everyone else for not chipping in as much but whether the very style of play that you need to employ to get Mitrovic good chances that he can and will take actually impacts you as a as a team overall and as a, an efficient attacking side in general so I guess those those questions continue despite Mitrovic's clear qualities um right a, a good positive start to the pod then let's actually talk about the, the third side Leeds United who Michael they do seem to have stepped up very very easily and it's been a, a welcome introduction to the Premier League for Marcelo Bielsa and his very specific style of football yeah definitely I think right from the first day against Liverpool where they lost 4-3 it was obvious that they were going to be you know as we expected just the usual Bielsa thing no real concessions made for the fact they'd, they'd stepped up from the championship they're playing the same way they're they're trying to dominate any game wherever possible and uh, yeah it's they to me feel obviously on a different level from from the other two promoted sides and I think in some ways maybe the Premier League will suit them more um, than it did the Championship, which is a very difficult league to get out of, as everyone says, and as Leeds have experienced in recent years. But they they just settled straight away, and um, yeah, there's there's so many players who I think just have, have looked a lot better than I expected at this level, and I think Bielsa and his system probably takes the credit for that. One thing I think to note about Bielsa is just obviously he's a he's a fantastic coach. Um, from obviously watching the team and, and knowing that the quality of players he has at his disposal maybe aren't um, individually, you know, Premier League level, but together the they're um, you know greater than the sum of their parts. And we can look at actually some data from from Smarter Scout, which they've recently kind of released some coach profiles and data on on coaches. And as part of that, um, they kind of give some figures about the impact of a coach in terms of how much they're responsible for um, either adding goals to the team in terms of making the attack better um, or reducing the number of goals and, and the quality of chances that are conceded. Um, and, and Smart Scout kind of points to Bielsa um, actually adding an overall half a game, half a goal a game, sorry, to Leeds in the Championship last season, which is huge. And if you were to pay for um, a striker to add that uh, you know, in games, they would cost millions of pounds. So it just shows that there is definitely a kind of Bielsa impact. And I thought that was a really nice way of um, being able to show that he is turning these players, which were a similar group in the championship under a different manager, into a fairly competent side in the championship and now obviously doing really, really well in the Premier League as well. And aside from Bielsa himself, I guess the headline name 
so far this season has been Patrick Bamford. And it's a name that, that brings out any data analytics guy in, in goosebumps, I think, really. He's an interesting case study uh, for you, isn't he? Given how much he has flown from underperformance to overperformance over the last few years of his career. I'm really, really happy to see Bamford kind of putting the quieting the haters maybe that's one way of putting it um he's playing really really well this year he's got six goals which i think is second in the premier league um on the kind of scoring charts um and yeah he's he's done that from 3xg and i think the interesting thing is obviously there's there's so much variance in scoring and and one season a player can be like bamford at leeds this year kind of completely off the boil um i think he he scored 14 goals from around 25xg so that that was the biggest drop off that's got to be in, one of the, the the greatest underperformances you've seen surely yeah i think it's it's definitely up there i think christian benteke had a similarly um bad season a few years ago in the premier league um but the thing with Bamford is, I mean, some people were saying he's a confidence player, but he definitely had the confidence of the manager in him to keep picking him because he did so much more off the ball than just just score goals. Um, and I think that you show that this is a great example of kind of the variance in, in finishing and how, from a more analytical point of view, finishing is actually this this more mythical thing, which is, is tough to measure and can be quite noisy um, over time. But yeah, at the moment... Bamford is, uh, is playing really well and scoring. Um, whether that continues uh, remains to be seen. Okay, well, in general, uh, we're not talking about these three teams specifically anymore on this podcast. We are talking about um, promoted sides in general uh, and what it is to move up to the Premier League uh, and how you need to approach things, how teams have approached things in the past and had success or otherwise. Um, Michael, you've taken a little look at the sort of historical stats, I guess, about how many promoted teams stay up and how many promoted teams get relegated in the first season. Um, what did you learn from that? Any interesting nuggets for me? Yeah, uh, first of all, we should give credit to one of our listeners whose Twitter name is JP Tock. Not quite sure how you pronounce that, maybe like that, um, who directs us to a great article on Reddit from three years ago by a Fulham supporter whose username is Cheapo Sam. And he basically compiled loads of stats about how well promoted sides did. And I basically just had to add to that three seasons worth of uh, of data. So yeah, that was quite interesting to look at because he found that um, in the history of promoted sides, um, since the switch to a 20-team Premier League in 1996, uh, 47% of teams lasted just one season. Um the stats have changed actually in the last few years because if you look at the last three years, uh, the nine promoted sides of them, uh, six have stayed up and a few of them have done very well. I mean, Wolves finished seventh in their first season, Sheffield United finished ninth in their first season. So there does seem to have been, at least in the short term, a little bit of a shift in, in how many teams are staying up. Um, what I also looked at, and this isn't specific to uh, newly promoted sides, it's just about how to escape relegation. I basically looked at how many points you needed um, and I came up with what I'm going to call the 25-25-50 rule, which I'm pleased to debut on this uh, podcast. And basically, the team that finishes 17th, so that's one point, uh, sorry, one place ahead of the relegation zone, on average, they lose almost exactly half their games. So they lose on average 18.8 games in a 38-game campaign. If you're going to do that, you need to make sure that half of the remaining games, the 25%, you basically win. So that's obviously nine or 10, half of 19. If you look at that points tally, I mean, 10 wins and nine draws gets you 39 points. No one's gone down with that number of points since Birmingham City in 2010-11. Uh, and I think the, if you look at the points 
uh, that are required for survival these days, I think it's almost not impossible to imagine, but it's very unlikely 39 points is ever going to send you down these days. Um, and if you do it the other way around, if you get nine wins and 10 draws, you end on 37 points. That's a little bit more precarious. I mean, Newcastle went down in 2016 with that number of points. Um, but as a very general rule, yeah, if you win 25% of your games and you draw another 25% of your games, then you're roughly okay. Um, obviously, it can vary according to how other sides are doing. But yeah, that's basically what you're aiming for. It's fun to look back, Tom, at the historical stats, what has happened in the past and to try and work out what teams need to do, how many points they need to achieve. And I think for a lot of clubs and for for players and managers, I I guess it's quite helpful to have targets uh, to work towards. Uh, What do you think about that sort of stat, though? I mean, I, I know from your perspective one thing that you're always desperate to, to make clear is, is to try and work out which stats are just interesting and which stats are interesting and predictive is often the word that's used. Um, what do you look for uh, in terms of stats or trends that have more of a predictive nature about what sort of team might survive and how to survive? Yeah, I do. I do wonder if we've created a bit of a monster in the Bad Stats podcast because now I'm going to be the guy who has to decide what's interesting and what's relevant. Um, yeah, I think that when you're looking at teams, especially teams that are promoted and trying to survive, I think that um, you largely need one of two things, and I think that is kind of a, a cohesive unit. And, and again, this isn't. I'm going to have to label whether these things are predictive or not. Um, but I definitely think that like there's some anecdotal evidence, at least, that having a smaller squad that is compact and you're using fewer players um, kind of more likely leads to to having success. Um, I quickly took a look at the numbers in the last ten seasons um, and kind of compared the trends of guys who were or the teams that were relegated to those that weren't, and kind of found that quite interesting. Interestingly, um, those teams that are relegated kind of integrate few newer signings um, than seasons before. Um, relegated teams also play more players. Um, this is an average of it's just 27 for teams that aren't relegated and 28 for those that aren't. But I, I think there's a greater spread in the terms of in the number of players used on teams that are relegated. Um, and in terms of also regular players, so these are ones which I deem as playing 80% of minutes available or more, um, non-relegated sides in recent seasons, um, which are those that, again, which have uh, been promoted um, but then didn't get relegated, uh, they had more of these players on average. So there seems to kind of point towards teams that are bringing new players in and integrating them fully, playing a lot of minutes, using fewer players, and then also just keeping a tighter core of, of regulars. Um, that seems to point to you know teams, if they can do that, um, have more of a chance of staying up. Now that mm. all boils down to play your best players and you have your best chance of winning, which is highly logical advice, um, but how <laughs> well that can play out in practice um, is you know differs club to club, season to season. That's the football statistics Ombudsman Tom Warville there uh, <laughs> talking us through things. Um, Michael, is it is it harder these days in inverted commas? Uh, the, the gap between the, the Premier League and the Championship is widely discussed as having grown and continuing to grow uh, as the financial inequality grows. Um, it, you know, do the, do the stats show that it is harder to stay up now than in you know an arbitrary previous era? No, I struggled to find stats that would suggest that, actually, um, which I think is interesting. I mean, to kind of repeat the stats I said before, but in the last three seasons, there's been a 66% survival rate. Um, and in the Premier League, 
years before that, it was 53%. Now, it's a relatively small sample size, uh, of course. But uh, no, I mean, that's been an interesting thing. I do think maybe there's there's something to be said for teams just being better prepared for the Premier League um, compared to 15 or 20 years ago. I just think, for example, increasingly sophisticated kind of scouting and analysis software means that players, they probably have more of an impression of what they're going to get. They probably see more Premier League action than players did 15 or 20 years ago. And I think that they know what they're going to be up against. Um, and so I think that could be a factor. But no, I mean, people talk about the the growing inequality between the Premier League and the Championship. Maybe this year we'll, we'll show that with Fulham and West Brom because, as we said, this isn't a year where you can spend money like there's no tomorrow. But, yeah, in, in recent years, the promoted sides have done very well. I mean, three years ago, Newcastle, Brighton and Huddersfield all came up and, and all survived, which is only the second time in the Premier League era that that had happened. So, yeah, it's a small sample size, but it's difficult to find any data to support the idea that it's getting harder. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, I mean, I looked at the data in the last, again, 10 seasons and saw that at the start of the, the decade in the 2010s, between 2010 and 2014, five teams were relegated. Uh, and then if you look at the, the next kind of five seasons, 2015 to 2019, there was six teams relegated. So it's not like even over time, teams have anecdotally, the the gap between the Championship and Premier League has um, grown, but seemingly it's not had a, a huge impact on the proportion of sides that are relegated. Um, one thing I want to pick up on also is that you know compared to, to 20 odd years ago now we increasingly are seeing more and more modern models around certain teams where they'll have a manager is now the head coach you have a sporting director and Ali I'm sure you can attest to this that this is the same across um, you know the championship and uh, and you know even leagues one and leagues two at this point it's not just a model that is exclusive to the Premier League so when you have teams that are run with an eye on the long term and an eye on strategically planning and properly planning for the future um, you are going to have teams who, if they can get a chance of getting up, have got a plan to stay there. I think I know which team you're talking about specifically, and I'm sure we'll touch on them later on in the pod. Uh, Michael, let's have some fun and reminisce about some of the, the best first season sides, if you know what I mean. Who, who are the, the most notable first season, not just survivors, but thrivers? Yeah, well, there's been two big ones in recent years. Obviously, Wolves a couple of years ago finished seventh, uh, Sheffield United uh last season finished ninth i mean if you go back to again i've taken all these stats from the the move to a 20 team division in 1995 the best ever was ipswich who finished fifth in 2000 2001 i think they might feature on our episode where we're looking at how teams do in the second season (laughs) um but yeah i mean certainly wolves and sheffield united and i know it's very early days but I'm going to put Leeds in that bracket as well just because they've started so well and I don't think people would be surprised if they finished, you know, 10th, 11th, maybe around that mark. I think they've all got very specific, quite unusual systems in very different ways. But I mean, Wolves came up playing three at the back. I think they've only ever played a three-man defence in in two different systems, 3-4-3 or 3-5-2, but I'm fairly sure they've been completely committed to that system throughout their two and a bit years in the Premier League. Sheffield United also with a three at the back, but played this kind of very unusual system 
with overlapping centre-backs, all about overloading teams down the flanks. And now Leeds, who are playing, again, a style of football that no one else plays, man-marking in midfield in particular, is a completely novel thing in the Premier League. The way that they attack with so many men as well as, I think, caught out opponents. So, I mean, it's maybe, uh, it's difficult to say there's anything in common between those three sides, other than the fact that they are doing their own thing. They're not just coming up and playing a 4-2-3-1 in a kind of, you know, almost a watered-down version of the way that the top uh, top teams play. They are doing their own thing, and I think that's been really notable with, um, yeah, these three sides who have looked just completely at home in the Premier League from uh, from the outset. And, and Coxie, just remind me about that magnificent Ipswich Town side of the early 2000s, the Tractor Boys who ploughed their way through the Premier League for, for one season at least. Yeah, I mean, incredible season. I mean, Marcus Stewart probably was the main man in that and uh, was coveted by a lot of the bigger sides. I mean, they won 20 games from the 38. It was an incredible campaign under George Burley. So that was 2000, 2001. So we're going back a a fair few years. Um, And yeah, I mean, their goal difference was was 15, which is just, I think, the the next best goal difference for a promoted side in the last 20 years has been uh, five. Uh, which was Reading in 2006-07. So, yeah, they were just a seriously good side that season. I can't believe we're going to move on without referencing Ali saying tractor boys and ploughing on. That is, <laughs> it's just, it's genius. Um, for me, come, you know, a couple of notable survivors were um, West Brom and Newcastle in 2010-2011. In um, they both came up, they scored the seventh most goals um, in a league that season, which, uh, I mean, ever since, I think the last team to have a an attack in the top 10 in the Premier League was Norwich in 2011-2012. So it does show that although promoted teams are coming up, maybe there's actually been a bit of a, a death in terms of them being able to make the jump to the Premier League and actually set the league on fire and score a ton of goals. Um, I think a lot of teams, as we'll, we'll probably get to, um, are surviving their first season at least on um, on a solid uh, defensive you know back line and, and keeping goals out. Um, but maybe you know, hopefully, Bielsa's leads can can buck that trend and show that to you know you can come up and be an interesting and fun attacking side um, and be successful with it. So I want to find some some answers where possible on this podcast, just to just to get some clues as to you know the the right way to approach things. I guess if 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 that's possible to say, uh, and of course every club is different and every case is different, and every single season in the Premier League is different as well with a different quality of of opposition and and relegation rivals, of course. But Tom, those teams who come up and go straight back down, do they go down more often? because of a bad attack, bad goal-scoring numbers, or due to a bad defence more so? Or probably probably you're going to say a mixture of the two? <laughs> yeah, as always, I'm going to sit on the fence here. Um, <laughs> I mean, out of the last 11 sides to, to kind of yo-yo, go straight up and straight back down again, um, five have been due to having kind of a bottom three ranked attack and defence. So essentially they've just come up been uh, you know unprepared at both ends of the field um, and and been relegated and then of the remaining six sides three have had an attack which was in the uh, bottom three in the league and then three have had bad defenses and we have actually seen some really interesting sides like uh, Middlesbrough under Tony Pulis not so long ago now came up and I think they had the fifth best defense of the league in that time but they just couldn't score to save their lives I think they scored 26 goals in the whole season we've also seen sides like uh, Blackpool in, in 2010 2011 who came up and um, actually had a pretty good attack they were kind of ranked ninth and they scored 55 goals in the season which um, considering that's Blackpool that 
team that was at the time on a shoestring budget and didn't really make any groundbreaking moves in the transfer market um you know they they did really well there but they conceded 78 goals and that was the the you know the highest number in the league that season so um yeah teams that that go down usually have gone down because they're they're either bad at bad at both ends of the pitch or just really really bad at uh, one and not the other i think one thing we can say fairly clearly uh, is that if you don't have an elite defence in second tier terms, you, you are probably going to concede a ton of goals in the Premier League. And that's obviously not a, a great foundation to, to build on. Michael, in terms of tactics uh, and, and style of play, do you think you have to make some compromises when stepping up? I mean, you've talked about certain teams that haven't really made many compromises, but probably came up in pretty good shape. What about sides who can't stick to the system to the same extent because of the step up in quality, because of the, the, the talent gap being closed and actually them being at a disadvantage now. Do you think there are any compromises that need to be made tactically? Yeah, well, what I'd say about Wolves and Sheffield United, who I mentioned previously, would be that they had a very specific style and it was specific in the way that they attacked. But I think first and foremost, they were solid defensively. And they did have a good defensive record in the championship. And that, by and large, carried on into the Premier League. You probably need to make more concessions if you are, uh, as you imply that, kind of leaky at the back. And I think an interesting example of this would be uh, going a few years back now to 2012-13 and Southampton under Nigel Adkins, who came up as quite an exciting uh, proposition they had a lot of very good attackers, many of whom obviously went on to, to bigger and better things, the likes of Lalana and Rodriguez and, and Ricky Lambert. But they were really leaky at the back. I mean, they were conceding so many goals in the opening weeks. I remember them losing 6-1 to Arsenal and 4-1 to West Ham. And I think there was maybe only one game in the first 10 where they didn't concede at least two goals. And it felt to me like they needed to you know, completely take a, a step back before they could take a step forward. And Adkins spent November and December in particular just really drilling the side defensively to the point where they got down to really good um, record, really, of only conceding once or, or sometimes keeping clean sheets. And obviously that led to a, a dramatic improvement in results. It maybe wasn't the kind of sparkling attacking football that we expected from Southampton at that point, um, but it was nevertheless much more conducive to uh, picking up points in the Premier League. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with your implication that um, if you were leaky in the Championship, you probably are going to have to change for the Premier League. Well, and on quite a basic level, that's partly because you will most likely have been promoted as a dominant team at second tier level. That's why you picked up those points, obviously. Uh, and, and then potentially, as a subset of that, a, a ball-playing team or a possession-based side, as many of the top teams tend to be these days. And it's just a, the nature of the step up. Teams have less of the ball, therefore have to defend more. Uh, and I think that does affect those who potentially came up with an attack first mentality who hadn't necessarily got the strongest foundations uh, at the back. It's, it's certainly an interesting one. Let's take a look at recruitment as well. It's got to be a big part of this discussion. Uh, around £100 million given to you in, in extra TV revenue that you didn't have previously. The, the numbers are vast, are gigantic. For many teams who haven't experienced this before, it is, uh, well, it's unprecedented, isn't it? And it's interesting to see the way that teams go about using this money to improve the squad and some teams who decide to, to stick with those that got them promoted. Uh, Michael, do you have any thoughts on what the best strategy here is? Stick with those who got you there or try to get ahead, try to close the talent gap by adding in the transfer market? 
I'm going to do a Tom Warble and really sit on the fence for this one um, <laughs> because I, I think it massively depends upon how good you were when coming up. And I know that might seem like an obvious thing to say, but take Fulham, for example. Everyone had, and I'm talking about the Fulham of, of two seasons ago, everyone thought it was disastrous that they brought in so many new players. But I mean, they weren't a great side in the championship. You know, they, they came up through the playoffs and, you know, they, they, as a lot of teams do, depend on a kind of a great run in the second half of the season. But they probably weren't good enough to survive in the Premier League without trying to buy a load of players. OK, it didn't work out, but uh, they did need to improve their squad. I mean, for an example of this, I go back to uh, 2013-14 um, and compare Leicester and QPR. Leicester came up and they, by and large, stuck with a lot of the players who had, who had done really well for them in the Championship brought in um, Ujoa as well from Brighton, who was another championship player. And they finished 14th uh, that season. Okay, after a bit of a late run and a change of system under Nigel Pearson to keep them up. People often compared that with QPR, who went on a bit of a spending spree, brought in a lot of players who were towards the back end of their careers on quite big money. And they finished 20th and went straight back down. So, okay, you can look at that and say, you know, one approach was right and the other wasn't. But look at the previous season, Leicester won 102 points in the championship and finished top. And QPR won 80 points in the championship and came up through the playoffs. I mean, that's seven wins difference. Mm. So it's quite obvious to me that one side probably did need to make uh, more of an effort to get new players in, even if in QPR's case, it probably wasn't the most uh, intelligent approach to that recruitment. Walville, you can give us a bit more than that. What's the optimal <laughs> number of new players to sign when promoted to the Premier League? <laughs> I think if if I knew that number, I wouldn't be reading it out on a podcast. Um, there definitely are, I think, from the numbers, which I, I kind of took a look at, it says that, um, you know, of the promoted sides that aren't relegated, they integrate 3.7. So let's say four new players into the starting lineup. And those that are relegated um, integrate two and a half. So, you know, three roughly on average. It's funny because part of me thinks, you know, the, the Fulham way the other season of all of our championship guys aren't good enough, let's you know, go to the market and try and replace them. It kind of killed any, you know, team chemistry that they remotely had under Slovis Jukanovic at the time. Um, and obviously then led to uh, a number of managers, Ranieri and then I think Parker afterwards, struggling to, to bring any of that back. But then you have teams like, like Norwich, who, did, you know, last season bought a couple of players, but largely stuck with the young contingent that they had, especially at the back in Max Ahrens, Ben Godfrey and, and um, Jamal Lewis, uh, and my personal favourite, Emmy Buendia. So mm. um, again, it's a, it's a case-by-case basis thing. But I definitely think that there's something to be said for um, teams which, again, it, it might be the boring answer, but having a long-term plan and just over time trying to bring that base-level quality of the squad up to, the, to, to where they can come to the Premier League, have another shot and they can stay here. And I think that's what, what Burnley did really well. Um, it's obviously what Norwich are building towards now. Uh, and I question whether, you know, with, with Fulham, whether they are thinking that longer term or if they're just kind of dealing with things window to window. Another interesting part of this topic is managers and most specifically managerial sackings. Uh, these are generally... Managers who have achieved success that has really ingratiated themselves with the fans and the board, of course, reaching the Premier League in itself. The promised land, they say, is, is such a hugely positive piece of football management. And yet, Michael, sometimes they don't last 
very long. Talk to me about sacking the manager that took you up in order to try and stay up when things haven't started very well. Does it work or is it just kind of making a change for change's sake sometimes? Yeah, I think it depends on the circumstances. I mean, to, to echo what Tom said, I think there's some teams who've come up with a very obvious long-term plan and therefore it makes sense to kind of stick with the manager who's doing a good job, who has used a specific system. There are some examples of teams that have done the opposite and often it's worked well. Um, I think the best example is Watford, who came up in 2014-15, I think it was, um, and they sacked Jukanovic before the new season started, which everyone thought was really harsh because he's the guy who's guided them to promotion. But it's a different job managing in the Premier League. You know, Jukanovic hadn't done that before and indeed has done it since with Fulham and, and, you know, showed that he maybe wasn't the right man. And they brought in Kike Sanchez-Flores, who, um, you know, people might not have great memories of uh, his second stint at Watford, but his first campaign, I mean, for a newly promoted side, they did really, really well. And I think part of that was, you know, Sanchez Flores was just accustomed to working at the highest level. He'd taken a side to uh, winning the Europa League, I think, five years before with Atletico. He was a very, very uh, good manager at drilling a, a defence for the highest level. And I think Watford... Uh, maybe only finished 14th or something, but they were pretty much safe by Christmas, really, which for a side who haven't been in the Premier League for the best part of a decade was a great achievement. So, yeah, it's, it's always it always leaves a slightly sour taste, I guess, from a kind of loyalty perspective when, when clubs are that ruthless. But I think you've got to accept it's just a completely different job. And sometimes when, when a side has the the kind of infrastructure and, and the, uh, you know, the wider ability to remain as a, a Premier League club for a few years, as Watford did for, what, five or six seasons. I, I do think you have to just be be logical and be honest about it and, and make a change if it works for you. But Tom, there are some sides, and potentially these are the sorts of sides that you've spoken about uh, in glowing terms, having a long-term plan, who look at it a different way, maybe a little bit more lucid about things and understanding of, of just actually how difficult it is to stay up following promotion from the championship. Is it a sign of a side thinking more long-term when maybe they stick with a manager for a little bit longer? Yeah, I, I definitely think, I mean, the team we were kind of alluding to earlier, at least I was, Ali, was, was Brentford. Um, and we definitely kind of see that, you know, they've, they failed to win the playoffs against Fulham um, last season. They stuck with with Thomas Frank, and even though they've lost Ollie Watkins and um, Saeed Ben Rama, they kind of uh, they have a, such a great pipeline and process in place where they can you know re-sign um, players and uh, and essentially bring that level back up for the manager when they have a manager who's so well bought into a given scheme or a, uh, you know given strategy. Um, it works really well, and I also think that we're starting to see. Um, a similar kind of thing happened to um, with Aston Villa and Dean Smith. Um, Dean Smith is is one of the few managers that I've ever seen openly and happily reference expected goals at a press conference. Um, and he's someone who I think is obviously he's gone through that that kind of Brentford school of um, of you know how the doctrine about the game. Yeah, exactly. And 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 Aston Villa are kind of evolving, and they've got Johan Langer, who's their new sporting director, who allegedly has done some kind of analytical based stuff to help grow and, and um, improve Copenhagen, his last club. Um, 
and and you know Smith was definitely not happy with where they were at, where they were seven, you know they were seventeenth in the table. They had one of the worst defenses before lockdown, and then something clicked over lockdown. I think John Terry. Um, there's a, I mean, I have to plug Greg Evans's piece here, kind of what the team did after their celebration party, because there's so many great snippets on just Terry's kind of individual analysis sessions with the defenders and and kind of you know turning Tara Mings and Ezri Konza into players. I think pre-lockdown were okay, and post-lockdown have looked a lot more solid and in, in fact this season um, their numbers are, are far better so I think that teams uh, and having some sort of cohesive um, strategy for the long run that the managers bought into as well is is just really solid and I think that if Villa you know were to go down um, if it was due to poor manager performance and every, you know the numbers drop through the floor then fair enough but if there's a, an element of okay we've been outdone by by variants here, we've we've essentially had a few unlucky bounces and it's end up in relegation. You'd think that they would keep the faith in Smith um, and uh, you know try him again in the championship because they know that the underlying process is is solid. Got to be honest, I wasn't thinking about Brentford and I wasn't thinking about Villa either. I thought we were hinting at Norwich City, Tom. We were talking about clubs with sporting directors, with long-term plans, who are open about their long-term plans. And even more specifically, in the last few minutes, a club who didn't fire their manager despite really poor results following promotion to the Premier League. What happened there? We are not on the same wavelength. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess we're still still learning to pod with each other. Uh, it's early days still. <laughs> yeah, I think, again, Norwich Norwich won it. And I was really intrigued by the comments that Stuart Webber made kind of um, upon, you know, Norwich's relegation being confirmed and essentially saying, you know, we're not, we're not happy. Um, yes, obviously, you know, we fully expected and, and kind of anticipated that this relegation would happen because we just didn't have the level of, of investment and maybe the, the quality of the squad isn't there. But, you know, Weber's not one to kind of rest on his laurels. And, and whether that was just kind of, um, you know, him talking shop, um, but in the back of his mind thinking, you know, this is fine, this is part of the plan, um, I don't know. But obviously they've stuck with Daniel Farker. They have signed players who, you know, suit that system. And, I mean, they got a result away to, to Brentford last night, poetically. Um so yeah, I don't know. I I think Norwich are over, again a very interesting case study, and one who are perhaps more vocal than than others in terms of how committed they are to this you know longer term plan. So Michael, I was quite hoping to get some conclusions on this podcast. I I wanted us to have a look at what happens when you're in promotion to the Premier League, and essentially how you survive, how you should approach it, and not to have a go, but you have spent a lot of this podcast saying it depends on the circumstances and <laughs> it depends on the team we're talking about. Um, can you give me any sort of conclusions or, or just following your research on this topic, any closing thoughts? I, 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 was, I was hoping for maybe follow these three broad instructions and you'll have a better chance of staying up. Can you give me anything like that? Well, sorry to disappoint, but uh, yeah, I mean, to, to, to just maybe emphasise the point I made earlier, I really think the fact that the sides have done really well. I mean, because sometimes it can be, sometimes if you finish 16th compared to 18th, it can be luck, right? It can come down to really small factors or, you know, a strike hit to run a form or, or there's certain decisions that go your way. But if you look at the sides have done really well, the the Wolves, uh, Sheffield United and Lee's examples, they've played a completely different way and they've probably given teams a bit of a fright, you know, a bit of a surprise. And it's very tough to say, okay, if you're at the top of the championship and going for promotion, you, you know, you can't just get promotion. You've got to get promotion in a completely different way to anyone else. 
But it clearly has helped these teams and they've come up and they've adapted very quickly and they've just given teams or given opponents a new challenge. And I think there's something to be said for that compared to, for example, Fulham, who have, uh, you know, they've got some decent players, but they play in a way that, that teams are going to be accustomed to playing against with less good players than they're accustomed to playing. And I don't think that's really going to cause uh, any major issues. So, yeah, I mean, that would be my main takeaway looking at, not just the stats of teams who've survived, but the teams who've done well, is uh, they, they're doing something different. I shouldn't have too much of a go because uh, at the very least you have come up with your own theory, the 25-25-50 theory, which you've uh, since trademarked. And uh, and I will certainly take that away with me today. Uh, Tom Warville, any, any closing thoughts? I feel like you are a proponent of long-term strategic thinking, not overreacting to short-term performance, good or bad, and just generally using data to help inform your decision-making process. I'm somewhat surprised that Coxie's not gone get Warlock or Allardyce in. I thought that could have been a, a long-term long-term plan. Um, I mean, for me, I think the the Warville school of thought very much is is all you know all the above that you just said, Ali. Um, I think that if you're a club that's recently been promoted to the Premier League, I think that you need a good kind of honest look at the makeup of the squad in terms of ages. Um, I think you need to understand um, are there certain players that we can sign on on short-term contracts that are um, you know, of a good age, peak age, maybe a bit older, who can come in and, and shore us up for a single season. And I think that, that that first year is maybe just around, you know, you're scrapping to finish 17th um, and, and what edges can you find to, to try and do that. So I do wonder if there's a club um, that come up and they try and do so much more from set pieces. I think Cardiff a couple of seasons ago, I mean, they had Sean Morrison from set pieces. He had chances worth, I think, around four or five XG. And I think he really, you know, and another day in some of those games, they're they're profiting so much more from from set pieces. So, um, yeah, I I think that, you know, if you're a team that's going up, if you know that you're offensively weak or defensively weak, you've got to... Uh, you've got to affect that in the transfer market. Um, but you'd hope that teams, once they get promoted, they aren't thinking, ah, we have issues with the squad. I think that's that's an instant red flag. I think if you're a team that's, you know, you find yourself in the Premier League and thinking, what's next? Um, that's something of a red flag. And I think that you want to have a, a longer term plan that is in place to, to means that, you know, you definitely know what you're doing next and you know how to make yourself a, um, a consistent Premier League side for the foreseeable. Very well put. Gents, thank you so much for, for joining me here. We've been taking a look at what I think Tom coined surviving your first dance after promotion to the Premier League from the Championship. Next week, we'll be looking at what happens once you survive. The difficult second album and or staying on the dance floor haven't quite decided what the tag for that one will be. But please do join us then if you subscribe to the Zonal Marking Podcast, either on your podcast platform of choice or on the Athletic site and app, then you'll make sure you get that as soon as it is released this time next week. Theathletic.com forward slash Zonal Marking. You will get all of Tom, all of Michael's excellent work on there and an array of talented colleagues that they have as well and you'll be able to listen to all of the athletic podcasts advert free on the site so do sign up today we hope you've enjoyed this podcast let us know what you think on social media you might be a fan of a club who has successfully stayed up or you might be a fan of a club who tanked and was relegated immediately let us know what your thoughts any feelings you have about how to approach things would be most welcome looking forward to hearing from you all and thanks for listening join us again next week on the zonal marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic.